Hi, welcome to SoupX Radio. My name is Bob Fitz and I'm your host. We're a talk show devoted to entrepreneurship, technology, venture capital, and small businesses in general. Today, our guest is Emery Ellinger, Chief Executive Officer of Aberdeen Advisors, a mergers and acquisitions advisory firm based in St. Petersburg, Florida. And Emery is also a fellow graduate of my alma mater, Washington Lee University. Emery, welcome to SoupX Radio. Thanks, Bob. So glad you could be with us. Emery, um, uh, tell us very high level, tell everybody a little bit about Aberdeen and then we'll dive in deeper. Yeah, thanks. Um, we sell businesses. That's all we do. So we sell profitable businesses that have revenues between five and a hundred million. Uh, our, our typical client is somebody baby boom generation or technology person that owns three or four businesses and it's just, they're ready to sell one or all of their businesses. How did you get into this? I mean, did you start off in this? Did you do something else first? What, what was kind of your path to doing this? Yeah, well, I'll give you a short story. We all have long paths at this age of our life, but um, I started in financial services at a very young age of 26, built three direct marketing companies and had clients like Delta Airlines, American Express, so pretty sophisticated direct marketing companies and we handled those programs for them. And I had a couple hundred employees and then I sold my company and then stayed on and we bought four companies. And that's when I got the itch uh, to do mergers and, and acquisition and investment banking. It was really exciting to me. And long story short, uh, since then I've you know helped over uh, to, done over 200 transactions, helping buy and sell businesses of all different shapes and sizes. Well, you're not that old, so you must be very active and do a lot of deals, Emory. <laughs> <laughs> we are very active. We're one of the top you know, firms in the Southeast, certainly one of the top uh, in the state of Florida. So it sounds like uh, you're an entrepreneur uh, by ilk and, uh, and for most of your career experience, but after you sold into the company and that company went and bought four other companies and you kind of got into the, the M&A bug, et cetera, did you ever stop off at a traditional house and uh, as an as an iBanker or did you all do this with your own advisory shop? Well, uh, it re- that's really a great question. Uh, I sold a pretty decent sized company and I called uh, the big investment banks in the Southeast and I thought, hey, I got to be the perfect guy for one of these, you know, uh, I banking positions because I just built a company, sold it, and you know, helped buy others. And the first question I got was, you know, where did you get your MBA from? And first, I didn't have my MBA. My MBA was done on the streets of Atlanta, Georgia, right. building a company. And so, uh, very quickly, I realized what I have to offer is not what they want. Uh, but being uh, a decent entrepreneur, I, w- I would not take no for an answer. And I, I basically built my own company from, from uh, I-, I started with a-, a small group in Atlanta, kind of learned the ropes, but then started my own uh, firm. And this would have been when, Emery? What year was that have been? Uh, Probably around 2001. 
this is a little bit of a tangent, but I could almost have predicted your answer. I once had a job. I'd been working for five or six years, interviewed for an investment bank. I was seven years into my career, and they wanted to know what my, my college GPA was. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, so before we get into the specifics of what you do, uh, how is being an entrepreneur first instead of an iBanker, you think, better informed you on doing what you do? Or do you feel like you have technical gaps that you need to work around or both? Well, um, our company is built on business owners that uh, have built companies and sold them. So when you talk to a Goldman Sachs group, they're going to have, you know, very financially astute MBAs from the top schools, which is fantastic. They're a lot smarter than our team. Our team is made up of entrepreneurs. So we've, you know, made payroll, built companies, fired employees, hired employees. So I think the strengths of what we do for the market that we serve is, you know, we're selling family owned businesses, founder owned businesses, you know, we're selling manufacturing companies, trucking companies. The, most of them do not relate to the New York private equity firms. Um, a New York private equity group comes in and asks them about their 2009 cell phone bill, and they kind of look at me like, why is that even important, you know, when we're selling a company? So they approach it very, very differently than we do. And yeah, there are strengths to both sides, but that. Uh, um, you know, that that's, uh, you know, our strength is I think we're our clients really relate to us because we've been in their shoes before. Right. You, you've done it. You know what their concerns are. Uh, you can explain to them and translate what's going on because you already had to learn it before. And there's a comfort factor that they get with you rather than having to be with a banker, which is not their culture, I'm assuming. Right. Exactly. So if if I'm going to sell my business. Um, when is the right time to do it? I, cause I read your blogs and I think I, the answer to this question is a lot earlier than people imagine, isn't it? Well, it, that, that's a, that's a good point. And, and here's the challenge. Your business may be ready today. The economy is ready today, but what we find in talking to these owners are, you know, most of them probably years ago would have said, oh, I want to sell when I'm 65. Well, they're 65 and they still, you know, their lifespan is pretty long still, or they think it is. And, you know, they, they still, as well as they've done, they still probably need some money for retirement and some of the things they do. And they probably still, most of them still love their business. So their business and the economy, you know, we're in the 10th year of a bull market, you know, it's not going to last forever. Um, so, you know, the, the market may be ready today, but they may not be ready. And it, it is almost more important for them to be ready. And, and by that, I mean, uh, you know, so many times we have seen over the last few years, we get five, 10, 20 offers and the seller or business owner is saying, you know, no to each offer for various different reasons. And, 
you know, a lot of times they're all logical reasons, but you know, when you've done as many deals as I am, sometimes you go, I don't know that I have a real seller here. I, I think there's something subconscious that they're not ready to let go of their baby, their, their business. So, you know, the business may, may be ready and they may not, and they may waste a year or two going through a sales process and never, you know, execute or achieve that because they're not ready. So one of the first things we do is, you know, really try to make sure that they are ready. They thought through this because it's a lot of work. Um, and um, so, so two questions, are they ready and is their business ready? You know, I've, I love your newsletter. I've been getting it for a couple of years and I really do enjoy reading it. Although, you know, as opposed to most newsletters, I just instantly delete. Uh, and uh, because I, I think it's very educational the way you do it. Can you talk through some of the issues that you, you highlight all the time at the tip of your tongue about that what companies don't do? You, you know, there's a planning process. You've, I see you talk about family issues and the things that they need to think about. And my very high-level understanding of what you do in, in your business is, uh, is, is that process takes – can take years for them to set up so that the the earnout, the family dynamics, uh, are all uh, set up properly, uh, and the planning process to make sure that key employees are retained, et cetera. There's so many pieces of this. It's really fascinating to how you talk about. It. I'd love for you to explain some of that to our audience today because I think you're really yeah, good at it. Right, and and that's a great question for. And I'll say this, and they will hear this, and most of them won't act on it. I don't know why, but it's just the way it is. So, so the first thing is the basic. Are your financials clean? Are they in good shape? And most of the business owners will say, yeah, they are. I've had this accountant for, you know, or my tax person for 20 years. And they may be, they may run their uh, taxes for on a cash basis. In other words, when they get cash in, they report it as revenue. When they write a check, they report it as an expense. But a buyer and a bank are want are going to want to see it on accrual, meaning the revenue and expenses are matched together. Um, so that they are, you know, what's called generally accepted accounting principles. And a lot of small businesses and even some very large ones, you know, don't run, you know, accrual and definitely don't run gap accounting. And so when you go in to sell the business, the buyer is going to pay Price Waterhouse, Ernst & Young, a big CPA firm to basically do an audit. And they're going to want those financials in generally accepted accounting principles, GAAP. And most of these sellers don't have it. And when the buyer comes in and does it, there are usually some pretty major adjustments. And it, it's also, it slows the process down, I mean, by three to four or five months, because all of a sudden now you're basically doing an audit of three to five years of financials, and it can be very, very difficult. So getting your accounting uh, financial records in order is job number one. 
Emory, uh, real, real quick before you move on. So when yeah. you ta- when you take on a new client, you do you think that other things about the client are good? I mean, let's just say they've got the right attitude, they thought through the other issues, et cetera, but they haven't done this. Is step one you go and retain another firm, or they do, and then they have to go rebuild their books, and that'll take a couple of months to do, or do you wait for the buyer to audit? Uh, which 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 yeah, approach is done? Quick. It's done all different ways. Most business owners, if they've been running a business like that for 30 years, they're going to say the buyer can pay for it. And guess what? The buyer does pay for it that. It just offer. takes it off the price. But though. guess what? It <laughs> majorly impacts the um, the purchase price because the and, and I've got three of these going on right now <laughs> in all different industries and. You know, the, the, the tax returns look fine and I mean, the buyers are, you know, everything's coded differently. Um, sometimes it's in cost of goods sold. Sometimes it's down here. Sometimes it's when Sally wants to record it. So, I, I mean, it's, and, and this is just almost always happens in these medium to small size businesses. So. It's best for the client to get a CPA firm that can actually get them very qualified, you know, reviewed or audited financials. It's going to cost them money, but they will make up for it in aggravation and purchase price on the back end. So now they've got their books in order. What's the kind of the other things you look you, you work with with the client in terms of the planning process? You know, um. yeah. One one of the big thing, you know, some of the big we call them the big mistakes. Accounting records number one, because that is probably one of the most common. Uh, number two is the business owners too tied to the business. They're the key person, and uh, I've got an example where. A family business, you know, it was like husband and wife, and you know, nephew, and 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 so the management team was husband and wife and nephew, and there was one other key person. So out of four people, you know, three of them were selling and leaving, and to them, it was no big deal. You know, you can replace Sarah, you can replace me. John will stay for six months and you can replace him. And I called the private equity buyer and I said, you know, Sam, this is what they're thinking. Uh, you know, the key manager will stay, but the other three family members are, you know, are going to be leaving probably, you know, within six months of selling the business. And I remember the private equity buyer and he was so nice about it. He said, Emory, your client may not think that losing three out of four of the management team or 75% of the management team is a problem, but that's a deal breaker for us. So there's an example of, even if it's just one, you know, the founder that's, you know, all the, all the key clients know them, the employees know them, the, the suppliers know them, and, and they'll they'll just brush it off like it's no big deal to replace them. They're usually the secret sauce, the key to that business, uh, and, and they underestimate 
So the point of that is they need to build a management team, a sales manager, an operation person, a finance person, and really let them run that that department or that uh, part of the operation so that they truly are a business owner and not the key to the business. And, and I'm assuming it extends deeper than that. I can imagine that there are models where the owner's willing to stick around on some kind of retainer for a couple of years and they get, you know, he's not going to work full time. But uh, what about incentivizing other employees to make sure that they stick around through the sale after the transact, you know, through the transaction and that, you know, and kind of create an incentive package that, you know, keeps them around so that the, the buyer knows that the value that they're attempting to purchase stays there. Uh, that's a good point, and and we've seen it on just many many transactions where the key general manager or sales manager, whoever it is, and the business owner thinks, oh, Johnny's been with me for you know 15 years, he'll stay no problem, and the buyer, if they're sophisticated, will say, well, we want to meet Johnny before you know, before closing, because he's key, you know, to us being successful. And I actually had this example. We went all the way through due diligence, did the legal documents. um, And then prior to closing, the seller finally agreed, you know, that they could meet the, the key general manager, who was a young guy. And he asked for like a $100,000 raise and 10% 10% of the business, and and I, I'll never forget this. It, they were meeting privately with the, the general manager was meeting with the private equity group one-on-one on a Saturday, and I remember the private equity guy calling me like three o'clock on Saturday afternoon saying, deal's off, you know, this guy is just asking for the moon. So there, there are things called golden, you know, handcuffs, where you lock them into, you know, some can be done with insurance policies or the buyer or seller can agree to, you know, pay them for their, you know, we close the deal, I give you a 20 grand, 50 grand, whatever is the right number. And then buyer or seller agrees that in a year, if you're still with us, you know, you get another, chunk of change or equity those are so there's a lot of different ways cash equity bonuses to really tie especially that that key management team you know in place what other are very common mistakes that you see happen over and over again i'm sure it surprises you how common they are still well you know so those are probably the two biggest uh, that we talked about the financial and the management team and the, probably the third is customer concentration and by that you know you have a client and they, they have one big customer Walmart and they are oh this is the greatest customer we've had it for 20 years of course they are but that one customer goes away you go from profitable to a loss you know overnight and you also are the key relationship manager of that, you know, Walmart relationship. So here you are, you're going to leave in six months and Walmart is 70% of your business. And that just screams risk to a buyer and to a bank 
that would be looking at financing that transaction. So, you know, the simple solution is to diversify your customer base and don't let any one customer be over 10% of your revenue. Um, if you do have customer concentration like that, you have, you know, Home Depot and, a, and, uh, and Walmart are your two big clients and they're 80% of your business, uh, you know, a sophisticated buyer is going to say, I will pay you over three to five years if these customers, you know, stay, you know, stay with the new business. If they don't, you know, what we bought has gone away. So, and, and you can imagine how a seller is going to react to that. No, you're buying me and I, you know, and, and if you lose that account, that's your fault. But, you know, most of those buyers are going to walk away from a deal if they can't structure that customer concentration, you know, correctly, because that that is a real risk. And I'm, are most of the buyers private equity firms? Is that safe to say? No, no. no we, we, you know, I, I think one of the cool things about what we do, Bob, is is because of the size. You know, five million on the small end, hundred million on the top end. We're dealing with owner operators, somebody that works for Coca Cola, and they're tired of traveling the world, and they've got some money and. You know they want to buy a business, so so they they could be a buyer, it could be a competitor, um, or it could be a billionaire, or it could be a private equity. You know, private equity is obviously very active, but uh, um, I would say about fifty percent of what we sell we we sell to uh, you know non equity buyers who are represented by a counterparty similar to you on their side. Right. So I'm not, you know, if it's a small one, most of the time they're not, um, that they could be, but, uh, not necessarily. Okay. I was just curious. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, in reading your newsletter, it seems I'm an operations guy, which means I like planning by, uh, almost default, even though I'm wasn't trained as an engineer, as you know, but my big takeaway from reading your newsletters is, is, you know, done correctly, someone really needs to think of this being a, a several year planning and execution process, not, you know what, I'd like to retire next year. Let me call Emory that in order to get the ducks in a row and figure out which employees are going to be around and, and putting together kind of this plan, isn't it safe to say that, you know, this could be two, three, four year plan that you should think through and execute. I mean, or am I just have I misinterpreted a lot of the just no, a lot of your no. newsletters? We have people, you know, the smart guys in the venture world. You, you get a business plan for them, and they talk about their exit because they know that they can't get um, sophisticated investors to invest if they say, "Oh yeah, you're never going to get your money back." You know, we're either going to build it and sell it in five years, or we're going to go public, or you know, they're going to explain what their thoughts are on an exit plan. The typical business owner we deal with though, I would say most of them have thought about it, but this is, you know, this is their job. They love it. Uh, I would say most of them love what they do and that's why they do it. But um, they didn't necessarily build it to sell. And they may say that, but 
because if they had built it to sell, they would be doing, you know, they would have a chief financial officer, they'd have a sophisticated management team, and and they're not. They're really running it as a lifestyle business, you know, to milk the, you know, the money they can take out of it without inconveniencing their life. So, you know, it's a nice lifestyle business. Um, so now I'm that guy and I've got my lifestyle business and I've been, you know, milking it for whatever I can so I could support my house and my boat and all this other stuff. And now I've decided, actually, my son-in-law is not the right guy to give the business to because for whatever reason and I've decided to sell. I guess the upside of that is there's probably a lot of cash flow that could be directed elsewhere uh, and some expense money that could be directed more efficiently and invested in the business. Um uh, but what other complications do you see when that light switch finally happens? You know, when the guy says he's going to sell one, you said the books have got to been cleaned up. Um, and, uh, now you've got to get a team on board. What are some of the messier things that you've seen lately? Well, I've got one now not to be named, but this is very typical of probably a third of our, you know, owners is, we're going into year end. He's had an incredible year, and he doesn't want to pay taxes. So he's about to wipe out a significant amount of profits through, I guess you would call them all legal ways, but they're, you know, he's expensing this and doing this, and that's great, right? Like I said, you're milking it to, you know, create the the most uh, bang for your wallet. But the challenge is if all of a sudden I'm showing, you know, a, a meager profit versus a couple million dollars in profit, um, that has a major impact on valuation. And it also, you know, in a lot of them, and I see this again and again and again, and I don't know. Um, I mean, I, every time they go, yeah, yeah, I get it. I get it. So I'm going to get paid four times for every dollar I pay in tax, right? Four bucks. Or am I going to take that dollar, get, you know, this, you, a dollar in revenue on the bottom line is going to cost you 35 cents in taxes you're going to get a purchase price on that dollar at a four multiple of $4. It's an easy, I'm not probably not making this clear, but the purchase price is like exponentially more than the taxes they're going to pay. So it's a great return for them to pay the taxes and sell their business for more. Yet, even though it's got a huge return on investment, they still wipe out their profits so they, they don't have to pay the taxes. And I'm not it's, I'm not surprised yeah. you're saying that, to be honest with you, because I, it's incredibly logical what you're saying. Look, pay the taxes because the increase in revenues when you go to sell, you'll get paid four times as much. So, you know, in a way, you're making money on your taxes. But people don't, even smart, intelligent people who've built long-term businesses have a really hard time cutting a check to the federal government. It's just something about the psychology of it that logic seems to get thrown out the window. And I'm sure you scratch your head about this 20 times a year. It's an argument that I'm sure you lose more than you win. 
Yeah, I just lost it. And they said, well, <laughs> a sophisticated, and I was like going, God, this guy's really smart. And they go, well, a sophisticated buyer will be able to figure this out. I'm like, well, the sophisticated buyer is going to have a sophisticated bank that ain't going to lend that money on this deal, <laughs> period. So, you know, you're not going to get a high value. You're not going to have your cake and eat it too. That's, that's the bottom line. All right, so we've talked a little bit about things that people shouldn't do. Uh, let's flip the coin. Give give some. I what are some ways to to maximize the value when I'm going into my sale, and not just the reverse of what we just said. Of course, you should have good books, and so that would be a smart thing to do. But what are other ways to maximize the value? Um, having recurring revenue. So instead the pest control is the great model okay you, you know we're going to come in every month and you know spray your house or your business and we're going to charge you x amount of dollars so a buyer can look at that business and say okay this is steady you know steady business whereas um other businesses are waiting for the phone to ring and so the recurring revenue model is significantly better than, you know, project type work. Okay. And, and then if my business doesn't have that luxury of having that kind of recurring revenue model, what are some other ways I can do to maximize value for the sale? Yeah. The biggest one, which is obviously the most logical one, is increase your profits. So how do you do that? Do you raise prices? Um, do you go into new markets where there's not competition? Uh, do you buy, if you're a manufacturing company, do you buy a similar manufacturing company and roll it into your plant and therefore have more revenue, higher margins? Um, so there are a lot of different ways, but at the bottom line is, is increasing the cash flow of your business, the profitability of your business. And a lot of sellers are surprised. They'll be, oh, you know, we net 10%. I mean, I've got equity funds that call and say, we won't even look at a company unless it has a minimum of 15 to 20% you know, in EBITDA cash flow. Um, that's EBITDA is basically free cash flow. So mm -hmm. that's their minimum. Because what are they looking for? If you have higher margins, it means you are doing something better than your competition. And we have a lot of people that try to sell businesses with patents and they have huge margins because they have something others don't. And also have businesses that have a patent and they have very low margins and they're like, well, they ought to pay a fortune for this patent. And, the, and you know, the buyers look at it and say, wow, even with a patent, you only have 8% bottom line margin. You know, this must be a really tough industry or you're doing something, you know, that's not that great. So the the scoreboard, the profitability is an indicator of you know, how well run your business is. Um, you know, I'm listening to you and I'm, I'm wondering, do, do you end up, so people come to you for a sale, 
do you end up spending a significant amount of time just doing general management consulting for them to prep them for sale? Because in listening to what you're saying, I could see you coming in, looking at somebody's business, realizing that you need to explain to them why they need to do certain things managerially or operationally. And they even, even buying into it, for them to go and do those things could take the better part of a year for them to happen, gain traction, look like it's a new established business practice that the buyer would see, rather than, I suspect most people just have the impatience of once they've called you, they want to sell. I mean, do you end up getting engaged and helping them do those things? Do you write an assessment and say, look, we'll come back in nine months when you've done these? It's uh, all of the above. So there's examples where we take it on an assignment, knowing that there are weaknesses. We, you know, talk to them about it and they said, okay, we'll really ramp up our sales or we'll get our website updated. You know, so some are like, okay, we're going to take proactive steps. We're going to hire a new CPA firm or we're going to get our existing CPA firm in here to, to begin an audit. Okay, that's great. We can start working on, you know, building the information memorandum to give to a buyer, but, you know, they are doing things concurrently with us, you know, beginning the process. So that's, that's one option. The other option is, like today, we took a client to market. They said their sales were going to be up this year. We got into the process. Then it was their sales were going to be equal to last year. And then we really come out and you know, we get a couple offers. And as and this is only over a few month period, their numbers are actually going to be down. And so one, they didn't have a good handle on their business. Two, their accounting was a mess, which is part of, you know, the reason we didn't have the good information. So we both agreed we're not going to get the value we wanted at this point. They're going to go back to, you know, refocusing on building the sales and profitability of the business. And hopefully later next year, you know, they'll be in a position to go sell. There, there's an example of, uh, you know, we got out there and we, we're not getting the value we want and, you know, we need to go back to the drawing board and fix some things. And then some people come to our office as a third option and they're not ready yet and not even ready, even if they start doing some of these things right away and we'll send them to a CPA firm and a law firm and a, you know, operation company to get to help them get some things in order so that in six months, a year, a few years, depending on their timing, that they are ready to sell. And aside from sales and finance or accounting, uh, is there much operational advice you end up giving them uh, or is it really kind of restricted to those areas? Yeah, it's really restricted. I mean, you know, we've run all different kind of companies. I've run governmental affairs, marketing, manufacturing companies. So, you know, our team is pretty has some pretty wide depth of experience. But that's not, you know, our focus is we we say we're the SWAT team of selling a business. That's all we do. We do it extremely well. 
and you know we'll bring in the you know accounting experts and legal experts and operational experts and regulatory experts to shore up you know weaknesses that need shoring up how tough are the family dynamics to manage in this? I would imagine to be has has to be one of the hairier pieces of what you do. Uh, you know, speaking of things that make people irrational. Yeah, that's funny. I was talking to a family business today that that uh, yeah they put fun in dysfunctional. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the family businesses can be the most fun, and they're the mo- generally the most challenging. Um, the and the one I was dealing with today, all kinds of family dynamics. Uh, you know, father and son are in their roles, and you know, one one son's working hard, the other one's not. You know, how do we gift the business? You know, the biggest mistake is uh, that we see is dad wants to be fair. He gives the two sons 50-50 in the business. The one son's a driver, the other son's lazy. They end up in court fighting over money and who, you know, that business. So a lot of times we would recommend give, you know, give the business. Don't give, if you have three kids, don't give the business a third, a third, a third. You know, give it to the person who can run it. And if they can't run it, you know, sell it and give the kids the money. But but a lot of those businesses are the the most challenging and then they'll come a generation later and try to sell it and they're all arguing and you know oh i think it's worth 25 million dollars you know it, on its best day it's not worth 10 so you have families that end up in court over this business and it, it's really a shame it's really sad to see but I, it sounds so typical as you'd expect. I mean, uh, yes, as you said, uh, it puts the fun and dysfunctional. Uh, how? What verticals do you do? You specialize in certain verticals, or is it just certain verticals you stay away from? And you know, which is which? How do you position yourself? I'd say both uh, to that question. We we definitely do a lot of healthcare. We do technology. We do a lot of business services like lawn care, heating and air conditioning, plumbing. Just because you know we're down here in Florida, so there's a lot of healthcare. There's a lot of business services um, type companies. We do a lot of manufacturing companies, which is a real healthcare and manufacturing are real specialties. Uh, because they take, you know, that knowledge, and and we've done a lot of transactions in those. Uh, we try to stay away from retail. Retail is pretty tough, and I mean, we'd sell fifteen Kentucky Fried Chickens, but you know, we're not going to sell the you know craft store, you know, in, in some strip mall. So. You know, retail is tough and it's getting affected by the Amazon uh, factor, which has made it even tougher. So those are construction. We, we, we've done construction. We sold some construction companies with big backlogs, but those are those are tougher as well. And how do you price? Uh, I'm assuming it's variable, uh, but, you know, how do you? cover the piece that's consulting in case you know you're just not on the hook for a transaction fee how, how do you structure your your pricing 
Well, yeah, we, and we really don't do the consulting. So, but if there, if there's, you know, more of a upfront, and, and maybe that's a consultative piece you're talking about. Um, you know, we would we would have a small retainer on the front end to build a financial model to do certain things um, to get it prepped. But then then it's a success fee based on you know, the, the, the size business it is and the complexity. And that's why we have to be, our firm is different than like an investment bank who may charge you 20,000 a month, you know, retainer, you know, we, if we think we have a motivated seller that's really serious and they want to sell and we share with them our valuation expectations and they're in that range, then you know we'll work on a success fee basis if they're really looking you know on a fishing expedition to see if they can get a hundred million all cash that you know we would steer clear of that um we don't want to you know one we don't want to disappoint a seller if they really think that's what their company's worth two it's a waste of time for them and a waste of time for us um if that's not a reasonable you know, value. So we just really rather just have a very honest conversation with them on the front end and just say, Hey, here's, here's where companies like yourself or, and you know, if you're, if you think that's reasonable, let's move forward. If not, you know, we're, we're probably not a, a good fit for you. So which puts a premium on your your ability to properly qualify clients if you're not charging huge retainers because uh, you have a lot on the line because you're investing a lot of time that you won't get paid for for quite some time. How long does that process usually take you? I mean, even people who could have an honest conversation, the more you talk to, the more you might realize that it's really a, a morass that you're getting yourself into. Is it a couple of days, a week? How much interaction usually helps you, you know, decide? Yeah, well, you know, usually we start with a phone call. If it goes well, we have a meeting, then we have a follow-up meeting, and then we're, um, yeah, I mean, a lot of times it doesn't go past the phone call. Right. We know, hey, your business is down. You're expecting a really high number for your business. You need to get, you need to get the ship, you know, turned around before we go to market. Um, if, if that call goes well, we meet face to face, they give us their tax returns and for financials, then we come back and, you know, then we have a lot more detailed questions because we have more information. We've done our diligence on them, what we can online. And we come back and talk valuation. And if, if they seem like, hmm, that sounds good, um, you know, we will generally, you know, move forward and present a, you know, you know, our agreement at that, at that next juncture. So, um, if, if we don't feel like we're still a hundred percent, we may dig in on customer concentration. If there's some risk areas for a buyer that would really affect value, we'll, we'll continue to, dig in and ask questions, you know, in between those calls and meetings and, you know, because what we really want to see is, you know, prove to me there's no customer concentrate, you know, prove to me you really, really, really want to sell and this is not, 
you know, just because your wife wants you to sell. Who drives the decision on the attorneys that are going to be retained? Because uh, I, you know, having the right attorneys at the table makes all the difference in the world and a good deal. Is it you usually recommending, or you know, they've been using the same firm forever? Uh, it's a combination, it, and I, I have no scientific. I would say it's fifty-fifty. You know, most of the time we dealt the hand of the CPA and the uh, attorney. If they don't have transaction, you know, merger and acquisition experience, especially on the legal side, we will just pretty much say, look, you want to get this deal done, you know, we need a good M&A attorney. And we, you know, recommend a few to them and let them pick the, you know, the group they're, they're um, comfortable with. Uh, sometimes we'll bring in a fractional CFO to help them uh, with the sale process and get their financials in order. A lot of times, you know, we'll have a fractional CFO and an accounting firm. The accounting firm actually does the financials, but the fractional CFO would be, you know, working with the CPA firm, working with us. And the nice thing is if you bring a fractional CFO in, then we can, you know, nobody in the company has to know the company's for sale, like the accounting people and, and the payroll people, but the fractional CFO can get us the information we need, you know, to sell the company. And it's a lot of information. And most business owners can't run the reports that are needed, um, so it's good to have, you know, a CPA, a good lawyer, a CFO, or a really good finance person internally to uh, to help you sell the company. A lot of our audience is uh, startup and early stage entrepreneurs or angel and VC investors. And most of your businesses, it sounds like, that you deal with are more traditional, but you said you do some technology uh, can you talk a little bit about the tech, type of technology companies that you have represented? And then could you tell a little bit about the difference in trying to sell tech firm versus sell, selling kind of more traditional businesses? Yeah, well, a tech firm can be scaled up so very quickly versus, let's call it a lawn care company. You know, you, you want to scale up a lawn care company, you have to get a new account, you have to get trucks, you have to get equipment. If you have a software company, once you develop the software, you can pretty much sell it as many times as you want, and it's you know 80% profit. So uh, the, the software technology companies are very scalable usually, whereas like a service company is not as scalable because of the labor and other logistics of, of, of building it. And, and we actually have what I would call early stage technology company. They're SaaS companies, software as a service. So they built a technology in a niche. Um, instead of spending another five, ten million dollars, you know, developing it and taking it global, you know, the owners have decided, hey, we ought to sell this to a strategic, you know, either a SaaS company that wants another vertical uh, software or, um, you know, sell it to a strategic client customer 
uh, or somebody that sells into those customers. So there, there's actually a couple different strategics we can sell that to. And, you know, sometimes it's just too early. You know, these people want, call it $50 million for a basically break-even type technology company. So that's a big ask. But for the right buyer, it's, it's a no-brainer. But if you're looking at it as a multiple of cash flow, it's, you know, it's, it's hard to get there. The point is the technology companies can be worth a lot if you can, you know, if it's far enough along and you can get to the right strategic buyer investor, um, you know, that wants it. I mean, all you have to do is look at some of these companies that have sold to Apple and IBM and Microsoft for sometimes billions of dollars. And if you did a multiple of cash flow, there's no way you would pay that much, but they're strategic and, you know, they can take that platform globally. So, you know, tech technologies really are interesting. I've loved it. I, I did a lot in the dot-com days. Those were mainly, you know, website type, you know, companies trying to go from analog to uh, digital, you know, now um, almost every company we see, there are people making these technology companies. You wouldn't have thought of the grocery store as a technology company, but Amazon is, you know, with Whole Foods, you know, changing that industry. And that's going on all across the board and, and really most, uh, most industries. So when is the best time to sell my business, Emery? Well, it's when your business is ready and when you're ready. And right now, you know, 10 years into bull market, it's, you know, the best time to sell. If you kind of look back over the last 20 years, have been, you know, 1999, 2000 timeframe, you know, 2007 before we went into a recession. And, and now again, the multiples are really, really high. They're at historic highs. So if your business is ready and you're ready, you know, the time to get out is now. If you're not ready or your business is not ready, then, you know, you, you need to put some action steps together to, to get yourself ready and also uh, to get your business ready. Well, I can imagine, Emery, with 14 days to go in the year that you are a little busy right now with several closings to work on. So I want to thank you for spending the better part of an hour with us and, uh, and explaining and telling us, teaching us a little bit more about what we need to think about in order to sell our businesses. Well, thank you. It has been a pleasure and great questions today. And, and thanks, uh, thanks for what you're doing. Thank you so much, Emery. Happy holidays. All right. Bye.